Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as insights in how to navigate the capital markets. What you'll hear in these interviews may very well change the course of your career, your company, and your life. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Uh, today, we're speaking with David Oram, who is co-founder and senior executive vice president of Sandstorm Gold. They're a gold royalties company in the uh, royalty and streaming space, and I think we're going to have a really fascinating conversation here. He and his partner, Nolan Watson, have built this from what was a few streaming deals or royalty deals into a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And I know that there's a lot to be learned here. So David, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, Corey, great to be here. Thanks very much uh, for uh, coming and chat today with me. I'm, I'm very pleased to tell you whatever I can about uh, Sandstorm and my experience in the industry. Well, we were connected through a mutual friend, Rylan Bailey of Equinox, and she's got stories to tell. And one of them was about you, about uh-huh. uh, some of the career experiences you've had. And I was like, I have to, I have to meet this gent. So here we are. I think the best place for us to start is if you can give us some background on yourself and then we'll build from there. So uh, I'll hand it over to you. Okay, sure. So I'm a geologist by training. I went to UBC. I got a uh, geology degree there. I was starting, I was actually starting in commerce. I wanted to do commerce. That's what I thought I was going to do, but took my first accounting, a couple of accounting courses and just gave up on it immediately and thought I'd never be back in that space again. But after getting my geology degree, I started off really just doing prospecting, early, early stage exploration for gold, base metals, a little bit of diamond work as well, too, in a couple of different spots. But then I found myself in an interesting position. I was working for Diamond Fields International, and that was a role that was both utilizing my geology, but also my first foray into investor relations, into corporate finance. And then shortly thereafter, in Diamond Fields International, that was really kind of the leftovers. So when Diamond Fields Resources sold Voices Bay, uh, really with Robert Friedland and Jean Boulam, I was really kind of in the leftovers, these offshore diamonds in Namibia and a whole array of different projects around the world. And what was really interesting about that is that it gave me much more international exposure than I had ever had before. In fact, Jean Boulam, who had run that company, he really had the idea that the best way to really that most opportunistic way to really work in the industry was to go to some of the most challenging jurisdictions in the world 
hmm. politically. So we ended up with projects in Liberia, in Sierra Leone. And, you know, in the early 2000s, that was a bigger deal than it was now because that was effectively just a year or two after uh, the Civil War had ended there. Right. We ended up places like Madagascar. We had projects in Greenland. They, at one point, wanted to send me to that rebuilding Iraq conference <laughs> to see if I could find projects in, in Iraq. Wow. Uh, so he was, a real, he was a real cowboy in the sense of, Willing, you know, the idea was is go to geologically prospective areas that may not be safe, may not be, uh, you know, investors may not be interested in it, but at least you get first mover advantage. Wow, wow, wow. So Diamond Fields, my God, we could probably talk for hours just about that international experience. But that, as I understand, I think he ended up with Silver Wheaton, which became Wheaton Precious Metals. And I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So, so really kind of because I, you know, I got to know the people at Wheaton River Minerals and that was right when Wheaton had done a tremendous amount of growth. You know, they had acquired all their assets, but they had just created Silver Wheaton and they were about to merge with Gold Corp with the Red Lake assets at Gold Corp with Rob McEwen. And I kind of managed to stumble my way into that office. I think I was employee 14 in that office. Hmm. So considering it was really three pretty big companies all in one, there was only a handful of people. It was really kind of Randy Smallwood was the one technical person that was in there. I kind of came in as the the second full-time technical person in that office. And that was a really an amazing exposure to me. Of course, that's where I met Nolan Watson who I've, I've spent a lot of time working with now over the last several years. And it was a great way. Like that was before I had known a little bit of IR and I'd known a little bit of corp dev and corp finance type of work, but that was like being thrown into the deep end of a pool and learning to swim. Yeah. Fortunately, had a, had a great guide. We had Ian Telfer, you know, Ian Telfer was really remarkable in his ability to really communicate well and understand all those processes of building a company, making acquisitions, and really kind of, you know, <laughs> sifting through all the chaff of a deal. Yes. And, and so that was a really a, a remarkable way to, to learn the industry was really under Ian. Huh. So that was a, a really great experience being there, uh, being part of that. Nolan and I were really the, the only two full-time employees of that company until after, until after the uh, merger with Glamis, the merger with uh, Placer, and finally people started coming into to Silver Wheaton at the time. So that gave us a long time to think about the royalty and streaming space to get a good understanding of what's happening on it. And then by 2008, we had left Silver Wheaton and it started working on Sandstorm. Wow. Damn it. I just, this, it almost bothers me the amount of questions I have already. For like, <laughs> yeah. there's so much here. Maybe let's, I want to come back to some of the stuff about Silver Wheaton, Wheaton Precious Metals, and how that developed. But if we were to, to go to Sandstorm, uh, sure. take us back, I think it was 14 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. 
you and Nolan, I'm sure there was, you know, sitting around over a beer or something and said, hey, maybe we should do our own thing. Or, you know, where did that originate? And what were some of those early conversations and early days of when you guys incorporated and started building the company? Yeah. And I think that that still kind of goes back to what Silver Wheaton was. You know, I think when Silver Wheaton was launched, I think it was just expected to be a bit of a one-off. And we could go into that for a long time, but ultimately it was really Lucas Lundin and Lundin Mining because they had just started off. They had made some acquisitions, what we would call these North Mining acquisitions, the primary one, which was Zincruvan. And he really made that approach into Silver Whedon that said, hey, you know, you just did this deal on silver from this, this mine in Mexico. What would you do? Like, how much would you pay me for the silver that's in Zincruvan? Hmm. And, you know, we, Silver Whedon had come to an agreement with him. It made a tremendous amount of sense. And that was a bit of the aha moment where this wasn't just a way to really kind of do some financial manipulation within your own company to get valuations right and maximum value for shareholders. It was actually a financing tool. And after that point, that's really what Nolan and I spent a lot of time talking about is, wow, you know, this doesn't have to be confined to byproduct metals. It doesn't necessarily need to be confined to, you know, maybe you could deploy it in almost any commodity. Mm-hmm. Maybe it could be a useful way. Maybe it's going to be the type of financing that eventually kind of combines with everything else. You know, up until, you know, the early 2000s, effectively, there's two ways that you could finance a project at the project financing level or anywhere in it. You yeah. could inject equity or you could inject debt one way or another. But we started thinking, wait, you know what, there's there's different forms of each of those things, both equity and debt, and sometimes they kind of cross over. But this is a really interesting product because it it carries with it for the person who really, the group that really kind of grabs it, the low level of risk that equity is, but it behaves a little bit more like a debt piece. So it's a, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it a hybrid of debt and yeah, equity. Yeah. To yeah. me, it's, it's kind of in its own class yeah. and it kind of fits in something else. And so, you know, in the end, that's really what resulted in for us. We just thought, hey, man, we, this could be used in a whole bunch of different ways, maybe a bunch of different types of commodities, you know, whatever it is. And we didn't really know quite what it was at the time, but we knew it was something new and it was going to have a big impact at some point in the future. And so we just, wanted to give it a try and see if we could deploy it and utilize it in a couple of different ways. So for context, and I think for some of the listeners who who aren't uh, deep in the world of finance, we're talking about royalty and streaming and basically buying or or financing, providing capital for a future royalty or stream of the commodity, for example, mm-hmm. gold. It sounds like, you know, you were really at the early days, the, the, the kind of the front runners of creating this form of capital formation, if you will, or, you know, access to capital. Yeah, you know, royalties have been around for a very long time. You know, you could, you could argue over hundreds of years or a hundred okay. years and, and companies like Royal Gold and the early, the early version of Franco Nevada were really just accumulating these existing royalties. 
and really kind of utilizing it as a financing mechanism, though, had really not been done. So, mm. you know, in the end, what these are, a royalty or a stream, it's effectively a slice of the revenue that comes from the actual mine itself. So that in itself kind of gives you, as the, the owner of that, a tremendous amount of stability in what that product is. But it also aligns you with the operator of that mine and the partner of that mine. So, you know, at first, when these things started getting thrown around, you're right, like, we didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't know how big they could be. We didn't know the impacts that they would have on the assets uh, themselves or the operators. So it did take really some time to really go through and figure out the best way to do this. And, and it really was an iterative method of trying to come up with this new this financing method. And yeah. so for us, it was, that was great because it was really interesting. It was engaging. You know, you really got to know assets really well. You got to know companies. You got to know the motivations of them. And it, it was, it was like trying to drink out of a fire hose because you needed to really figure out what you were doing because it, it was effectively a, a totally new way of providing capital into an industry. The challenge, of course, was, is that our industry, the mining industry, and it probably still is, but it certainly was then, had a very, always has had a very conservative view of finance. And not a particularly innovative view as to how to finance and, and, and do things. So that was the challenge. Yeah, I, I want to get into that. I have another question, but we'll come back to this in the sense, like you mentioned Ian Telfer as being somebody who was a great communicator. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also connects to the ability to communicate an innovative product, whether you're trying to sell a form of financing or you're trying to raise money. But before we go there, I'm sure over the last... 10, almost 15 years now with Sansa, you've got to have some stories there. One includes a DC-3. I think one <laughs> probably includes the, uh, the ore samples that are behind you. What can you take <laughs> us back to? Yeah, yeah. Listen, you know, when we started up the company, when we started up Sandstorm, it was in, we really picked like May 2009. So a little bit kind of unbeknownst to us and really just truly just pure serendipity, that was really the bottom of the market. And so obviously mm. there's, there's good things and bad things that come from that. The good thing is that it's the bottom of the market and it's starting climbing. The bad news is, is that when you're at the bottom of the market at the time, it's really hard to put together financing. It's really hard to convince people to do things. One of the challenges that we had is that after we had actually announced the public financing, about 10 days into it, we thought we were doing pretty well. We uh, had a bunch of institutions that thought it was a great idea. The deals we had brought to the market were good. But the price of gold, when the IMF said it was going to be selling 400 tons of gold, the price mm -hmm. of gold dropped almost $200 in the course of three days. That obviously puts a real damper when you're trying to put together equity financing. I remember we had... One twelve million dollar order go down to two million dollars. Wow. Uh, two five million dollar orders just totally disappeared, and as a result, we ended up with an institutional book of after a little bit of convincing and arm wringing of about eight million, and we were going for uh, sixty million dollars at the time. Oh my god! 
So what we ended up doing is really talking to a lot. And this, this is where I think Pathway Capital, uh, which is Dave DeWitt and Marcel DeGroote, who are really okay. uh, a couple of really amazing guys in the industry. And they have a huge, uh, they have a great background and compendium of stories behind them as well, too, where they were really useful. They really believed in us. They were big believers in what we were doing and, and, and uh, the, how great Sandstorm would be in the future. So they really opened up their note, you know, their Rolodex of people, high net worth people in the mining industry, which we went on and talked to. So those were people like Dave Lowell, one of those real legendary explorers in our business. Jeff Loudon was another one. So a lot of that kind of well-known royalty in the space. They loved what we were doing. They understood the long-term nature of the mining industry. And bit by bit, we were able to piece together and really put together a retail financing and okay. managed to get to the target that we wanted to. Now, going back to Jeff Loudon, that's where one of these things came from. So uh, Jeff Loudon, you may or may not know, he worked for Placer. He made some amazing discoveries like Lahir Deposit in PG and Papua New Guinea. But he also was involved with Placer for a very long time on the gold side. Good friends with Dave Lowell. Big success story, made a lot of money. One of his hobbies, he's Australian-based, one of his hobbies is old old airplanes. And okay. He's, uh, I know I'm kind of getting in this a long way around to get it. Anyhow, he's one of the major sponsors of Historical Aircraft Restoration Society based out of Wollongong in, in Australia, just outside of Sydney. And he had invited me to come to the Diggers and Dealers. And of course, this was early on. And, and I was really keen on trying to take our model and try to get deals in Australia. And he was like, listen, this is going to be a great trip. We're going to load up in a, one of my old planes that I've helped restore. And we're going to fly across uh, with a group of people in the mining industry. We're going to land in Kalgoorlie for the Diggers and Dealers Conference. And you're going to be the hit of the town because you got a chance to fly on this, this plane. So anyhow, we show up and fly to Sydney. We go to Wollongong and we're ready to board this plane. And it, it's an old DC-3 or Dakota, what they would call it. And it was literally from World War II. It was a, tr a plane that they had used with, for paratroopers. And it didn't even really had, have seats. It kind of had these two sort of sling back canvas benches that went along the sides. And yeah. the pilots were very nice guys, but they were well into their 70s. They were ex-commercial pilots for things like Cathay Pacific. And the navigator, I remember in particular, he was in his 80s. And they had, you know, it was a very old plane. <laughs> but... We load up on this thing, and most of the people that were on it had really kind of no idea. We thought we were going to at least get seats on it. But we ended up in this plane flying across Australia over the course of two days, because I don't know if you've ever flown in a DC-3, but they're their, top speed, their top speed is about a, maybe about 150, 175 kilometers an hour yeah. <laughs> in terms of ground yeah. speed. <laughs> Yeah. And I've so, been in some of these older planes too. And my God, like they're tin cans, man. There's they totally no are. Yeah. It's screaming loud. Yeah. And it was really, truly just restored to World War II style of, wow. 
of planes. So, you know, it didn't have any kind of amenities at all. And so you, you kind of sat on this thing and it was, it was so loud. You could barely talk. That being said, you know, Jeff is a, a real character and he really uh, knew how to have fun. He had brought a little mini cricket bat and a tennis ball. And during certain periods, we would play cricket inside this, nice. the, the fuselage of this plane and making sure, like, that's the one point that we would close the door to the cockpit just to yeah, make yeah, sure yeah. that it wouldn't go in. But, you know, you, it was really hard, but we would land, uh, we'd fly across South Australia. Usually our first night was in Adelaide. Then we'd fly to places like Seduna and other places to fuel up because you could really only go. You could go about 400 kilometers at a time before you had to fuel up. Wow. <laughs> Eventually you got to Kalgoorlie. And it was a very uncomfortable ride. You're only flying about a thousand feet off the deck. So there's just a lot of bouncing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and turbulence, which some of the passengers were not terribly comfortable with. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a lot of fun. And on the way back, when you flew, you would stop and I stopped in places like Cooper Pedy, which is, if you know, is kind of one of the old historical precious opal mining districts of the world. Okay. And a real amazing spot. We would often fly over, what's it called, lake, this salt lake, basically a salt pan. And the years that we would fly over them, they would, after about 10 years, once every 10 years, it would flood. And so you'd get a chance to see this salt lake that would become a, a gathering spot for all these amazing birds from all over Australia wow. would migrate here to this when it flooded, call it once every 10 years. And so there was a lot. And we stopped in Broken Hill. We often would stop and tour mines as well, too, along the way. So it was a really amazing experience. But certainly not for the faint of heart. It's not easy flying on one of these things. And when you, when you see your crew uh, coming in, and we did. One year, we actually had one of the crew members was a World War II pilot. Wow. <laughs> he had joined us for the flight as well, too, who, had, uh, who was a lot of fun. But, you know, it was rickety. Like, the bathroom facilities, there was a cargo door in the very, very back of the plane where we would store our bags. And that also functioned as, as the, the bathroom facilities. The yeah, the latrine. And the urinal was literally attached to the back of that door. And it was kind of had an opening about that big okay. with a lid off of it with every single edge was rusty and razor sharp. <laughs> nice. That whole thing. <laughs> So when you're going at turbulence, it certainly made you think once or twice whether, whether or not it was worthwhile to relieve your bladder at any given uh, time. Wow. <laughs> it's, you know, when I, when I hear this kind of stuff, like it's such a fascinating industry that you've yeah. been able to, to build a career. In. And I say this both for, for those who are young and those who, who really just relish in the stories of, of people who have built careers in mining. You know, I think about Lucas Landin, who you mentioned, you know, who used to race in the Paris Dakar out of yeah. just, you know, like total adventure, right? Or another gentleman who told me a story when he was in, I think, I think it was Liberia as well. And there was a funeral for one of his, his colleagues 
which I, I won't get into it. I, I, actually, I should have him on to tell the story. But yeah. what I'm getting at is, man, what a fascinating business to be in and, and the characters that come from this. But yeah, you we, know, that was the big appeal for me. So, you know, the, I, like I said, I had been in pre-commerce uh, at university and then I switched and it took me a little while to figure out which science I wanted to switch into because I knew I wanted to do science. And really geology picked up and big part was because I'd met some people and they had had summer jobs in geology and their whole summer was just camping and hiking in the woods, being outside. And I thought, man, can't beat that. <laughs> what, yeah. what, a, what a thing to get paid for is to really kind of walk through and, and do that. So that was a big peel for sure. Wow. With, if we were to come back to look at, at like Ian Telfer uses an example, you said that he was a great communicator. What does that mean? Yeah, you know, what, what the great thing about Ian and what I learned so much about Ian is that he was really able to, he understood the mining industry really well. He understood capital markets really well. He understood ultimately what the value drivers were in the space and he was great at being able to sum that up and really kind of come across not just for uh, you know investors and people who are interested in taking a look at, at the companies he was involved in but i think for a lot of the employees that he had he loved and he loved the idea of having a small office and the mm -hmm. idea of having young ambitious people working for him that were really focused on being successful themselves. And what he was great at is communicating what he'd need out of those people, you know, concisely, yeah. uh, what they needed to do and what the goals were of the company. But he was also great at communicating the idea that, hey, we're all kind of making up most of this as we go along. So mm -hmm. I fully expect you to make mistakes along the way. And I fully expect you to kind of, you know, that to realize that I'm probably going to make mistakes along the way. But as long as we're all kind of in this together and we'll, we're all working hard, we'll kind of figure out how to navigate that path. You know, he, I remember one of the things that he said to me was, to me was you know, when I'm leading people up the hill or when a leader is leading up a people up the hill, a good one, they're going to end up on the wrong hill some of the time. Mm. But as long as they're actually leading that group and they're all working together, eventually they're going to find that right hill and it's going to, and it's going to work out. So for me, that was, it was a, just a wonderful place to learn. It was a tremendous amount of work. We had a yes. lot on our plates. We were doing, even though it was silver wheat and we were doing gold corp and wheat and river work, and so there was a lot, and it didn't really matter what our title was or what you were doing. You were always happy to put up your hand and, and put to work. And that's certainly, you know, that's a big part of what I've carried with me all the way through Sandstorm. And we try to do the same thing. We try to hire people on that same basis, I think, that, that Ian did. And we try to, again, do that same thing, communicate to them as to everybody who works at or in the group is that, hey, we're not going to get it right all the time, but as long as we're all really kind of working together and focused on something, we're going to do something special. Something special is eventually going to work out for us, and uh, we'll we'll get and we'll do what we need to. Nice. Now, now from that experience, 
I'm curious about yourself in how you've developed for corporate development. <laughs> Excuse the double, double word there. But more to the point is your focus, as I understand with Sandstorm, is really on corporate development and going out there and finding deals, helping advance the company. What does that mean and how has that changed for you since your earlier days? Yeah, listen, it's a, a great thing about where I sit now is that we've hired a, a very good team in the corp dev side. I mean, some of the most dedicated, smartest, you know, I like to say that I hire people that are both smarter and harder working than me. And that makes my life way, way easier. Okay. And so we've hired a good team in the beginning, you know, it was really kind of everything in the beginning. It was effectively Nolan and me. Uh, we hired a couple of other people, Ron Ho, who's been in corporate development now for us and for other companies now for the almost the entire length of Sandstorm and a guy named Denver Harris. And, you know, the background was not necessarily on the corporate development. It was not as important as really that ability to think laterally about what we were doing. I mean, we realized what we were offering from a business development perspective was an okay. unusually and not commonly used product. And so having those right people in there and thinking about it in a different way was really important because we really had to sell the idea. When you're talking about debt, when you're talking about equity, you don't have to sell CEOs and CFOs on the idea of it. But we really had to market the idea of what a stream was, what mm -hmm. the benefit could be, why it's an amazing option for each of these companies, which means that you really use it in a lot of marketing skills. now. We had ended up creating a base of teams, but we spent a lot of time just thinking, okay, how do we pitch this idea? How do we, how do we let them know that this is a better idea than equity for them? Mm -hmm. How do we know that this is going to work out better for them than debt? How can we tell them that this is a great part of the combination of what they're doing? And to be honest, that wasn't easy. And, and frankly, a lot of times we weren't successful right at the very beginning of things. So do you remember areas where you weren't successful versus the ones you were? Like when you talk about thinking laterally, with that, I would imagine comes a lot of different options, different paths you can go and testing and iterating through. Do you remember any of those that stuck out to you and where you had the aha kind of thing? Yeah, you know, the ones that worked out really well and where we were able to to really make a good penetration were the companies that were really run by accounting or finance background people. Gotcha. You know, they were the ones that really spent a lot of time thinking about risk in the industry differently. Because, you know, I tried, I've said this kind of a couple of times in, in conversations, you know, I'm in, and I say this from a geology and especially early stage geologist background is that in order to be successful as a geologist, you have to be irrationally optimistic. There's mm. no way that you're going to find a deposit with the challenges that you have on, on the discovery phase. And when, no way you're going to find a deposit without really saying, you know, not giving up and really, you know, making it a real big deal out of very poor data. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I, I, you know, we've talked to hundreds of companies over time and the ones that were run by geologists, you know, they, they have that very optimistic view of the markets, of the project, of really everything. 
And they don't necessarily, like a geologist can be great inspirational. And of course, we need them in the industry to find deposits. But they don't necessarily look at risk in an appropriate way from a financial point of view. And uh, engineers as well, too, on the engineering side. You know, engineers are taught and trained to really kind of create a model, you know, a discounted cash flow model and an idea. And they built in contingencies and they build in this. And, you know, they say, okay, I've got a model. It's going to operate within this range. Yeah. And again, they tend to say, okay, it's going to operate in this range. And if, you know, the deal that you're offering me doesn't fit within that range that I think it is, then, you know, why would I do that deal? Whereas when you talk to people who have accounting background, you know, an accountant, if you were to give an accountant, this is a, you know, a project and a geologist, a, a identical product, and you were going to both give them a budget and say, design a program as to how you would utilize this money. You know, a geologist would come up with a drill program and exploration project, and it would you know, be perfectly reasonable. But an accountant almost certainly would say, well, the project is to not spend this money and not drill this project <laughs> because right. the chances of me actually having success in this project are so low that it's yeah. not risking this pool of capital that I've been yeah. given. So I'm going to look at something else. So, so that's really kind of the difference. And, and when you talk to those groups that were really kind of the decision makers in the company, you tended to have much more traction because they could see immediately that the product that we were offering as a royalty and streaming company was much more aligned with what they were trying to do. Mm. And over the years, that's really kind of happened. So the difference between now, kind of getting back to your, your old question really kind of now, is that we need to spend, we spend less time on actually focusing on selling this product because it's been a successfully deployed product. Not yeah. without its mistakes and without its problems, but, you know, now today, you know, when we started up Sandstorm, you know, we said, well, you know, eventually everybody's going to consider this as a product. Now, I don't know what timeline we were thinking because we felt, you know, we faced a lot of opposition from many management teams. But now you see today is that the whole suite of companies, regardless really where you are, small companies, single asset companies, you know, medium-sized or else very large diversified caps. Almost every CapEx project or project financing that goes out considers a stream gotcha. just one way or another because, it, it you know, we have been successful. So now as a corporate development and as you look at deals, you're spending less time selling what the product is and more time actually and trying to figure out how to make it work in a financing solution for a company. I see. And, and I can imagine it really becomes clear when you think about early days of out there trying to pitch and sell this as a, as a financing alternative, as a product, and then seeing, I think you'd probably find the deals that are better for you and more aligned with those who are, who are leading from an academic side and mm -hmm. much more logic into this is the, this is the financial model of what we're doing. This is how this bolts on. Huge educational components still for the accounting types versus going out there and trying to do a deal with somebody who is full emotion-led, crazy optimism. And you know, ultimately that could, could blow up for you in that. So I can see 
how you would use that as your business development piece. I want to use this to segue over to, I'm sure there were some failures along the way, but as we, as we earlier discussed, you have this, this really beautiful picture behind you of these core samples. And I just in our pre-call, I said, Hey, what's the story with that? And then you started and I said, no, no, tell us on the podcast. So what is the story with that? Yeah. Yeah. So this photo behind here is from a project as drill core, some of the highest grade drill core that you might ever see in the world ever, okay. as a matter of fact, but a drill core from a project called Serra Palada, which is in Brazil. So, and I keep this photo up on a reminder for myself as, you know, the real pitfalls that you find in this industry. So Serra Palada was a company, was owned by a company, it's owned by a couple of different groups over over time, it's a relatively famous, famous project in Brazil because it was uh, there was a series of photos of it. It's in this Carajás region of Brazil, which is actually very popular, the base of, of Valais' northern system of the iron ore projects. But it's really kind of a little spot in there. And back in the 70s and 80s, it was not a well-known project, but... It was the spot of effectively a gold rush, really kind of Brazil's most famous gold rush. And it attracted thousands upon thousands of workers, which staked claims as small as a meter by a meter within <laughs> this pit. Wow. And there was a series of very famous photos by a Brazilian photographer, which made the rounds in the early 80s. And this pit of these little tiny mines that were effectively a meter by meter, two meters by two meters. And it really looks like ants. They're remarkable photos if you look them up. And you can find them if you look at Serapolata photos. Uh, if you just look them up, you'll, you, that, that'll be the first thing you see. But it really looked like ants of these Brazilians, Garamperos, really going to mining this. Hmm. Now, this project ended up getting shut down by the government. There was a lot of crazy stories behind that. You could spend an hour and a half talking about that on its own. And, but it ended up getting shut down by the government. It ended up in the hands of a Canadian company called Colossus Minerals. And they really started publicizing these remarkable drill holes, both on the gold side, but also on the PGM side. So this drill core behind me, it really kind of runs in the hundreds of grams of gold and PGMs equivalent. Really unusual deposit. You can also see that it's, it's really fractured and broken up. It doesn't look like drill core at all. It just yeah. looks like chips. It looks like something you might get from a reverse circulation drill. But it almost looks like coal or something, chunks of coal. Yeah, it almost yeah. does. And you can't see really a lot of evidence of any of the minerals, any of the gold, or any of the PGMs. But we did make an investment. We made a, a $50 million plus investment in this. And, uh, and sorry, well, that was through Sandstorm. That was through Sandstorm. And okay. really another company that we had created called Sandstorm Metals and Energy because we were looking at both the gold side and almost uh, looking at streaming some of the PGMs off of it as well too. So that company, they had gone into the idea of building a mine based on really very early stage economic studies and technical studies. You know, they had a really high market cap, like... Uh, Colossus Minerals back in, call it 2010 and 2011 on the basis of these great drill holes and kind of this mythical story of Serra Palada itself. 
they ended up doing, uh, you know, they had a market cap of uh, $800 million plus US. So, but because they had early stage economic studies, they wanted to push the project forward and we did a financing. So they couldn't get bank debt because they mm -hmm. didn't have far enough economic studies. So we had gone forward and, you know, we, what we really believed in the project was the technical nature of it. We believed in the high grade. We believed that there was a mine here one way or another. But one of the problems, and I think one of the things that we were too hasty a judgment on, was management's ability to really execute on the technical mm. aspects. Uh, and then we overlooked the assets. So these, I talked about these Garamperos that really swarmed over this project. Well, they had been given this cooperative called Kumagasp, and they were, as this cooperative, they were partners with Colossus Minerals at the site. And what we didn't do a good enough job at is really understand that dynamic and that partnership. Hmm. And as a result, we had challenges and really Colossus had challenges in being able to execute on their idea. The, there was a lot of volatility in the partnership between this group called Kumagas, this cooperative and Colossus. And as a result, it ended up in a project that just didn't get built and really ended up in going into an insolvency situation. Mm. So for me, you know, I was disappointed it didn't come together. I'm disappointed that it didn't work out. I, you know, I still believe in the technical aspects of it. But this is, you know, I keep this up behind me as a reminder that there's so many more things to look at than just the drill core on projects. Yeah. And really, you know, this is a, there's so many things more than just the technical aspects that you want to focus on. And you need to really drill down on and, and understand extraordinarily well. And so certainly I track that up to an important lesson and something that I carry with me all the time is many times in this industry, you get really excited at the technical basis, but mining is really, really hard. It's, mm -hmm. it's devastatingly hard. And if you don't get all these little pieces, these cogs that all fit in, it's in addition to the technical aspect, you're not going to ultimately drive and create a machine that spits out the gold that you want it to. Yeah. And so I kind of keep that as a, as a reminder to make sure that we're always looking at things from all the different angles that we can think of, even the ones that you, you know, you don't know exist at the time. You know, yes. how do you, how do you figure out how to factor that in to your decision-making process and, and your risk assessment? of getting involved in the investment. That reminds me of when, when I first started in, in <clears throat> business after business school, the, I worked for the executive vice president of, of a large commodities firm, $10 billion company. He's a former Wall Street investment banker. And he would always say, what are we missing? What are we missing? And, and I think it was some way to, to just make sure we were holistically looking at any deals we were doing. But I want to come back to just say that I really love that you have that there, right? Like it's, it's, yeah. it is, I think we need these things as, you know, artifacts to, to show us and to keep our, you know, our, our North Star, if you will. So very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Like, listen, you know, you have to approach this industry with a lot of humility mm. because every project you invest in and look at, something's going to go wrong at it that you just had no idea could be a thing that was going to go wrong. Yeah, And so you need to kind of approach that and understand that. 
and be ready to adjust and be able to accommodate for that when it does happen. Because, you know, we've have, you know, when I look at Sandstorm, you know, we have investments in 250 different assets and 40 of the things those going cash flowing. And I don't think of those 40 that have cash flowed for us, every single one of those projects have had something weird, unpredictable, mm-hmm. or something that has negatively affected their ability to operate the way that they had hoped to. And so, you know, it's really important. It's really important to, to think about what you've screwed up on in the past, because I don't yeah. care where you are, where you sit in this industry. If you've been in this industry, there's been screw ups that you've been involved in. There's been screw ups that you've been responsible for. There's been issues and problems that you've come up with, but you have to be forgiving of that, of the people that you're working with and of these projects. And you have to be able to figure out how to maneuver and, and kind of wind your way through these issues. With, with some of the, some of the greats you've worked with, some of the legends in the, in the mining business, Lucas Lundin, Frank Justra. Another name that comes to mind is Frank's partner, Gordon Keep, who I've got another question regarding for you. But when you when you look at some of these individuals who have been able to surpass this, how much of that do you think is luck and how much of it do you think is skill? And how much what what characteristics do you see in them that you don't see in others? Yeah. No, well, listen, for sure, it, it, you know, in this industry, probably more than any, you know, because it's commodity based, timing is everything. Mm. So when you're, you know, you can put a tremendous amount of really good work on something, but if the timing on where the markets sit, the appetite after the capital markets, really where the commodity prices sit, enthusiasm and the, you know, really the, yeah, the enthusiasm of those commodity markets, that's a really important determination of whether or not what you're planning is successful. But really, I think in when you take that part out of it, for sure, like there's that tenacity to make sure a deal is successful. You know, you don't necessarily have to be, well, I think creativity is really important, but, you know, you just need to be willing to work as hard as it takes. And when, you know, again, failures are a part of this business. And when one aspect fails, you just, you know, redirect and reroute. You know, I, I can't talk about it, but just yesterday we ran into an issue on a, a deal that we're working on. And, you know, something that I think we were trying at, we really, it, you know, it, it looks like it was going to fail. We started brainstorming just on a phone with the three of us. And we started thinking of a different way that you could do this. And now we're pursuing it. And it's almost certainly a better solution than what that first one that had failed was. So as long as you really are willing to kind of work and think about new ideas and don't let that ego get in your way to really kind of find what that right solution is and that tenacity to really push forward, that's a, that's a huge, important aspect. Mm. But also in this aspect, I think it's really important to know when to quit on something or when to really kind of completely change your direction. Mm. You know, one of the real greats that I worked with that I, that I, I'm, I'm so happy I got a chance to work with was David Lowell, who in my mind is, is really the greatest, you know, the greatest explorer that we have in our industry to link to. 
the biggest, by far the biggest influence, I think, especially on the copper industry, but on how geology is done worldwide. Uh, and, and probably also the discoverer of more copper in the world than, than anybody else by a long shot. But he, you know, one of the things that was amazing about watching him work is that, you know, his, his, his skill was early stage discovery and really finding those amazing world-class deposits. And he was very optimistic at first. You know, he'd tell me about his theories and his theses and, and what he wanted to do. And I was like, oh, yeah, this seems like a real long shot. But he would keep working on those projects until he found that one bit of data. You know, going back to this thing that I talked about before is, you know, we, we try to predict, you know, we're trying to create these projects, both on the discovery side and on the economic side, on extraordinarily small amount of data, very, very limited data on these projects. What a lot of geologists do is they see stuff that doesn't make sense and it doesn't necessarily steer them off the path. They still want to focus on it. But what Dave was great at is that once he saw that one little bit of evidence and data that told him that he was down the wrong path, he just mm. kind of gave up on it. And to me, that was one of the biggest and one of the distinguishing factors of him as a geologist and why he was so successful is that he knew when to quit, you know, mm. really ambitious, really optimistic until he got that one bit of data. And that made him just kind of cut off and give up on projects and kind of steer onto the next yeah, put one. Put the energy somewhere else. Yeah. And, and to me, that's something that if we use that in this industry a lot more, we'd be successful, much more successful to outfacing investors and people outside the industry. But we do a lot more favors to ourselves in this industry. You know, too often I see companies and, and managers and, and people working on projects that just don't merit that work. They'd be better off, you know, focusing on a different project and their energies and the talent that they've accumulated working on different companies. And and to me, I think that's a real determining factor. And, you know, the successful people in this industry, I think they do that. They work on a project. They try to understand it. When they see a project that they feel the pieces are going to come together and they make sense and they make that proper risk analysis of it, and then they really work hard and put their heads down and make sure that this is going to be successful no matter what, those are really the distinguishing people in the industry. Hmm, really interesting. It's a lot of conversations come to mind and I always feel so guilty for the amount of names I drop when I'm talking about this, you know, we're 150 interviews in, but like I'm thinking about Rick Rule and Marin Katusa and a couple of conversations with them and Rick Rule making the statement in our interview, when it comes to, to he looks at like board members and the team and, and it's like, if this person doesn't have experience in the deposit, they're in, why are they there? What's the benefit? So like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm, I'm trying, I want to take this into how it, how it structures for building these deals. Another one from Aaron, he said, you know, any of these guys who are going around the rounders, you know, talking about their deposits at Cactus Club, it's like, don't have time for them. Because it's yeah. like a quick lunch at Tim Hortons because there's work to do and there's hard work to do and there's obstacles and mistakes that have to be overcome to create really successful exploration and development. So it's, wow, what an industry. 
Yeah, no, it really is remarkable. You know, it is. It's kind of rife with those promoter types and those ones that are really kind of getting a quick buck. And that doesn't really serve us at all. Yeah. But it's it's a realist, you know, realistically, it's part of the industry. It's really kind of how, you know, they have their service, you know, there's a purpose to that too, because they do attract capital into the space. And we do need that speculative capital coming into the space which we probably as a whole haven't been great at attracting over a long mm. time, or at least diverting from other speculative investment possibilities that are out there. Yeah. But, but yeah, you know, you do, you have to focus and you need to work with those people that want to work as a team that can fill a role and can really do it. I mean, for us, that's been a, a strong believer at our space, you know, Sandstorm, we're not a big company people wise. But we do like to try and hook ourselves up and associate with different successful groups in the space. Mm. You know, we have office space in downtown Vancouver. That's where we're based out of. And we have, we rent out and we lease out more space than we would ever use as Sandstorm. And we keep that space effectively as, you know, when we see somebody successful coming out of a project, so they've sold the project. We sometimes offer up space for free as they start their new company up because what we want to do is is be attached to those smart people in the industry. A good example is, is is Christian Malau. So Christian Malau, once he sold True Gold, we say, hey, you know, come into our space. You know, I'll give you an office for free. You know, but it's a space that you can come in. You know, feel free to throw around ideas, toss around things, and as you get your next project going. You know, work here. Same thing with Greg Smith. Greg Smith, who's CEO of Equinox now. You know, mm-hmm. he came into our space uh, when he started uh, Esperanza with the idea of Esperanza. We've had the guys from in- Integra. You know, Jared Salamis and Steve Dijon. After they sold Integra Gold, they came into our space both to start Verify up and both to start up in Integra Resources. And so we love that idea of. You know, because that's where ideas come from. And, and uh, you know, is when you talk to other people in that space, you don't want to insulate yourself. You want to make sure your door is open to everybody because, you know, you want to bring people in. You want to talk about ideas, about ways you can add value and, and create new companies. And I always want them thinking about Sandstorm because, yeah. you know, we, I want to be partners with the smart people, the hardworking people, the people who've had success. And if you give them a little bit of uh, startup for the next one, you never know how that might pan out for you in the mm-hmm. future. And, you know, to me, we don't need so much competition in this space. What we need is collaboration. Mm-hmm. We need cooperation. You know, we need to work together because we face, the mining industry faces a tremendous amount of uphill battle. You know, the, General public hates us for the most part. They yeah. certainly don't understand what we do or how we affect things. A finance world, we're certainly considered, gold especially, is considered really alternative of the alternative. So we need to really kind of work together to really attract investors, You know, make sure we're sending out the right message to the public to make sure these projects work. So why compete when you can collaborate? Mm. And, and we're a small enough industry that if you do something wrong or you, you know, you're disrespectful to somebody, you work 
poorly with somebody, you've treated them badly, irresponsibly, it's going to carry back to everybody within moments, probably. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, you're better off working hard on your projects, working hard on just figuring out how to work with good people in the industry. So I think that's the approach we try to take. Mm, really interesting. Man, it, we've already ripped through an hour here, just blazed through it. And I've really enjoyed the conversation. I want to ask a couple more questions just to aim to wrap up here. And the first is unrelated to your even your know, career or the, the industry, but do you have any books or podcasts or other media that you read or that inspires you or that you, that you go to? Well, yeah, you know, one of the, a great book, I think that everybody should read who's in the capital park, uh, capital public capital markets is The Outsiders. It's a book that really kind of talks about capital allocation because that's a word that is probably not used enough in our industry, but is used in a lot of other industries is this idea of, and it really is just a, uh, an assemblage of really stories of great investors over time and how they have thought clearly and differently than what the, most of the people in public capital markets have done and how it's worked successfully to them. And it really shows is that what it doesn't necessarily take, take, you know, or in-depth knowledge of the industry. It just needs to take critical thinking about how you allocate capital at any time. And really what I'm talking about is that, you know, when you have capital available to you and when you have to come to that point where you make a decision on how you're going to allocate that pool of capital that's available yep. to you, how do you do it? Where do you look at? It? You know, mm -hmm. are you going to allocate it to paying back shareholders through dividends or through share buybacks? You know, are you going to do this deal? Is this deal going to be accretive to that capital that you're sitting right there. And, you know, for me as a geologist who comes from really a technical background, that was really enlightening for me. I really loved that book. To me, that was a great way to make sure you do think every time capital is available to it and you're thinking of deploying it in one way compared to all the other avenues that you have available to you. And is this actually the best way that you can spend that money because mm. it's going to, you want to make the biggest impact for shareholders, for your company. Sometimes, and that sometimes that's weird too, because sometimes, sometimes a lot of your shareholders don't necessarily understand that at the time too. Yes. And so you have to, you know, you have to be willing to defend that position as well as to why you did that. So for me, that's, that was a really enlightening book. And the Outsiders. Yeah, The Outsiders. To me, it's... Do you know the author like, by any chance? Ah, uh, gosh, you know what? If <laughs> if I looked on my bookshelf, it's probably sitting right there. Oh, yeah, uh, we'll but, uh, yeah. you, but you can look it out. It's it's not the Francis Ford Coppola movie from the 80s <laughs> with, uh, with Tom gotcha. Cruise. Tom Cruise and the and the rest of those guys in it. But it's a, it's really a remarkable book and uh, I think great reading for almost anybody. Awesome. Final uh, question is, any final thoughts for the audience? You know, I, I would ask if you... For the CEOs and managers, actually, let's make this two parts. One for young, young career-seeking professionals, or you know, pre kind of university, if they're considering an industry. Any advice for them, and then also any advice for CEOs and IR pros in the industry we're in. 
Yeah. So for the young people, I think coming into this industry, you know, whether or not you're coming from a finance background, whether or not you're coming from a more technical background, you know, spend some time working, you know, be patient in the early part of your career, you know, look to work in a couple of different scenarios. You know, if you're a technical side, spend some time working at a mine itself, if you can find mm. that. Because whether you're a geologist, you're an engineer, you're metallurgy, you know, understanding how those minds really kind of communicate, because they tend to be split up into those three parts is the geology side, the mining side, and then the processing side. Mm. You know, take a look at how each one of those groups communicate and how they communicate and the information they're looking for each other. I can tell you right now that if you really pay close attention to that, that will serve you your entire career because you will understand by looking at each one of those aspects what an actual ore body is. And it's important to define that from a discovery or a project you're working on from what actually an ore body is. You know, our industry is often talks about discoveries and projects, development assets. In the end, what we really have to know about is what makes an ore body, what's mineable profitably. And you can actually take that rock out of the ground and effectively squeeze whatever it is, a value that you're squeezing out of it. Hmm. Get a good grasp, even though it may seem tedious, even though it may seem a problem. You know, work with a mind so you understand what an ore body is, because mm -hmm. that's ultimately the basis of what we're trying to do. On the finance side, I think it's great too. Like, if you want to be involved in the mining space, you still should focus on on what that ore body is and how these different groups work together. You know, learn a little bit about each one of these things will take you a long way to really understanding where the risks lie in a project. Hmm. Now, really kind of the message kind of going out to CEOs out there is, is really, I think, be patient, you know, work on, be patient with the investments that you're looking at, be patient with the companies you're at, and be patient with the capital markets. Plan for really kind of how your company can function for the next three years at a time. Hmm. Uh, if you're on the exploration side, make sure you're managing what that capital balance is, even if, you know, it means you have to suspend a lot of really important work. Um, talk to people in the industry, talk to people on the finance side, keep good relationships with them because it really will serve you. If you find those right people, you know, you'll navigate a way to success and uh, because it is, it's a tough, tough industry at all parts of the cycle. And even when it's good, it's a tough part. And when there's yeah. a lot of capital available, it's still a really tough part. And you always want to be thinking about things as laterally as you possibly can, given the, the time and the opportunity you're actually able to do that. Awesome. I really appreciate that, David. I'm, I'm so happy we connected. I wish we had more time, but this is, uh, this is awesome. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, listen, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been my absolute pleasure. I love to talk about the industry. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy you, you gave me the opportunity. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. 
For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.